Chapter 19 Die While You're Alive I woke to the smell of cinnamon and coffee. I opened my eyes to see Molly looking over a tray of food. It took a few minutes to get my head together, but when I shook the sleep out of my eyes, I realized I could think much clearer, move as I did. I was tired and a little weak from lack of food. I don't know how long I'd been in bed. She saw me awake and smiled at me. Do you want me to feed you? I could make train noises and bring the choo-choo to Mouthtown. It was the absurdity of that remark that brought me around again. I laughed so hard that Molly had to shush me. I sat up on the side of the bed, slowly and carefully until I could measure my own strength, and took in the smell of warm oatmeal, toast, coffee, and orange juice. In a little paper cup, I noticed a few assorted pills. I was still smiling and trying to come up with an equally silly thing to say back to Molly, but when I saw her face, the sincere look of pleasure on it, I stopped and enjoyed the moment. I smiled at her, and before I could articulate the thought... Molly leaned in and pressed her lips onto mine in a kiss that I'd been waiting to enjoy for weeks. Instead of the passionate grinding and sucking and probing I expected, it was a simple, soft affair where I was able to taste her and smell her neck and hair. She touched my cheek with the back of her fingers and let her hand glide down my arm. She broke the kiss slowly, packing my bottom lip with smaller kisses that started crossing the line from the innocently sensual good morning, sweetheart, and into the realm of how you doing, sexy thing. I kept my breathing under control and focused on my tray of food. Vitamins, Molly said, pointing to the cup of pills. I had my doubts for my own reasons, but said nothing. I dove into the food with Molly beside me on the bed, grinning. She ran down the morning's plan. A hot shower, new clothes, a proper medical exam. Finally, a chat with Paul. At the mention of his name, I stopped chewing and looked up at Molly to hear more. Everybody works down here, she continued. You got a couple more days to rest up, unless the doc thinks you're ready to get to work. What do you do down here? We keep the up top running, first of all. We help those idiots running HG World avoid riots. This was all supposed to be a temporary arrangement. People were supposed to come and take everybody out of here. But that ain't happening. I don't understand. How many of you are there? Fifty of us, plus twelve workers who take shifts in the pipes into tunnels. They don't know anything about what else we do. That's part of the Down Under you can't visit. You may see someone who might recognize you. If that happens... Molly tried to put it the best way she could, but settled on the truth. You may as well put a bullet through his head, too. Letting that sink in, Molly crossed the room to a small side door hidden by a bookcase. I'd learned that each of these little offices, designed to operate during a time of crisis, came with a full bath. I imagine that bureaucrats and politicians stuck in the middle of a global crisis would still want to look their best. The hot shower was welcome, and 
damn near orgasmic. Thinking I had maybe a few minutes tops, I scrubbed and lathered and scrubbed some more, knowing full well that Molly was waiting on the other side of the plastic sheeting watching me. I wanted her in there with me, but... Shower good. I stayed until she came for me a long while later, when my fingers were prunes and the water had lost its sting. Paul is busy with an excavation project right now, Molly said as I toweled off. She stood silently as I put on some fresh sweats, then said, Want to see something really awesome? I can tell you what I hoped she wanted to show me, but as I followed her across the floor of my little office-slash-dormitory-slash-prison cell, Molly revealed a little brown book from behind her back. It was her Bible. At first, I was a little confused and disappointed, but remembering this was what she risked her life, surrendered her body to recover, I shared her excitement. Tell me, I insisted, touching the book and the back of the hand holding it. It's not really mine, but... Molly's hip began to vibrate and stopped her in mid-sentence. Rolling her eyes, she pulled a small, old cell phone from her pocket and rolled her eyes one more time. Paul's ready for you. Part 2 It was a walk intended to impress, maybe intimidate me. Two of Paul's assistants, I guess, I wouldn't want to call them thugs, were already outside the door. They gave us the usual disrespectful lingering glances and smiled wide at Molly before leading us down a stretch of cheap carpet and drywall, followed by another and then one with slightly more expensive paint and trimming to a big oak door. It wasn't as impressive as it was ridiculous, because it was a big oak door hung on a thin interior wall, a decision that screamed bureaucracy. The inside of the room looked like a movie set of some important government director's office. Impressive and shiny from a distance, it was really all press board. The walls themselves pretended they were mahogany, even though it was just the backside of the corridor wall that shook when the big heavy door opened and closed. Molly remained outside with our guides in a small waiting area. Behind the big, shiny desk overlooking a lot of shiny tabletops and fluffy chairs sat Paul Handsome. Fate was cruel to Mr. Handsome because his smooth wedding DJ voice did not match the patchwork stitching of grafted skin and scar tissue. He had wild, sandy surfer hair and a big blue left eye next to its squinty right partner that gave him a slightly crazed look. His position under the track lighting informed me that he wanted me to see and react to his appearance. Having seen what the dead look like after days or weeks, this was nothing new or terrifying. He tried to make up for his face with a bright, obnoxious Hawaiian shirt. If he was actually wearing pants... I couldn't tell. He greeted me with an expression I later came to identify as a smile. What's new, Nancy Drew? Same shit, Brad Pitt. How are you and your merry band of Morlocks this morning? It's actually late afternoon. I know, it gets weird not knowing the time, the day, the season. Plays with your head a bit. 
There was an awkward silence where I studied the bookshelves, and he stared at me like some self-important shift manager at a Wendy's conducting a job interview. I tried to move things along with a not-so-obvious question. Whose office is this? Sorry? You told me you set me up in your office. You either have two offices, or this is the office of someone far more important. There are a lot more books that probably no one has read. From the flags and the Staples catalog furnishings, I imagine this was a FEMA director's office. You can stop trying. I already think you're an impressive person. Did you read Encyclopedia Brown as a kid, too? I always wanted Bugs Meanie to beat the crap out of that little, pretentious bastard. I take it you're upset that I crashed your mad scientist club? Hardly. You passed our test. Congrats. Oh, nice. You set a pretty low bar if the test required turning knobs and walking stairs. What if I told you that you'd been recruited? I'd sit here quietly while you explained that to me. Let me ask you something first. Do you think that the trained chimps upstairs in HG World are even capable of running a hardware store, much less a society at the end of the civilization? I laughed. <laughs> no. Of course you don't. That's why you started your little newspaper and started asking questions. Part of it was to find Molly, of course, but you needed that little push to get you started. Once you started pulling on that thread, you didn't stop when the answers got uncomfortable. Who are you people? Well, we used to be FEMA. Some of us are National Guard and Homeland Security. Others we pulled from the lines outside the warehouse and even the warehouse itself. We even have a former state senator down here with us. He's an idiot, so we have him working the kitchen. He made your breakfast this morning. When our regular command fell apart, we decided to follow our last orders as best we could. We're here to protect the people upstairs until either the food runs out, help arrives, or this all blows over. That seemed to me to be a slightly optimistic assessment of our situation, so I pressed him. What's the best option right now? Well, local money's on starvation, contamination, disease, or my favorite, internal uprising. Your mayor is cracked. That Jack guy is pretty much shattered. And Jebediah? Holy crap, if you knew the kind of stuff he does upstairs on his private time, ooh-wee. What kind of stuff? Well, you remember that guy who tried to break out of HG World? Garrison, I think his name was. He broke out through a fire door and two really stupid constables chased him out. I remembered that man clearly. He was separated from his family when the doors closed. He was the last one inside. I personally would have just let the poor guy go, but they got him back inside kicking and screaming. Problem was that one of the constables got jumped by an eater. I'd say that's a win for Darwin, but it turns out that it was the mayor's son. 
so the mayor gave Garrison over to Jebediah for punishment. I assume that means they tortured him. At first, that's exactly what they did. But then they broke him. Now he's something of a... I don't know. I hear Jeb calls him a whiny little meat puppet. Jebediah, warrior poet, prison rapist. I didn't know any of that. I guess I'm not all that good a snoop. I don't know. You got onto the roof. You got the constables talking. You hacked into Ruby's computer and managed to get past our firewall into Milnet. Pretty sneaky stuff. You're lucky we let you down here. Jack and Jeb were getting ready to shut you up permanently. Oh, yes. Why do you think they took you out of a quad dorm and put you in a private dollhouse outside and away from the main group? Their love of journalism? I let that one process a moment, and Paul sat back in his chair. His big eye narrowed briefly, and after a pause, he said, You really didn't know, do you? Hmm. On the plus side, I think if Jeb didn't get his sweet release one way or another, I suspect the showroom floor upstairs would just be a gallery of corpses and tractor supplies by now. Is... Molly part of your sweet release service, too? His crooked smile opened to perfect white teeth. Oh, your sweet red Molly. Romance is not dead. No, dear heart. Molly works for us, but sex is not one of her essential functions. You know about her little Bible. So whatever she did to get it back... Leotards, ice skates, pigtails, whatever. She's off the clock for that stuff. I told her that I'd bring old Jack down here for a chat about it, but she asked me not to. So please don't paint me the dirty misogynist. That's Hank. And you should be proud of your Miss Molly. She played Hank and Jack like the Harlem Globetrotters. Or is that too old a reference? He planted a seed of doubt to see what might take root. If she was playing them, naturally I should think she's playing me. I didn't take the bait. So what did you recruit me for? To business, then. Frankly, you're smart, resourceful, young, and once you get over your sentimentality about how we handle the dead, I think you'll come to understand our mission and want to help us. Molly gets it. Most of us get it. Frankly, the ones who don't just don't care. What is your mission? What do I need to get? Mainly, we sit on a pile of food, supplies, guns, and ammo. It's not something we want the general public upstairs to know about. It's best if everyone involved and thinks we have just enough crazy rednecks with freedom sticks to defend a pillbox rated to withstand a Michael Bay disaster movie. The management knows, and we supply them with enough resources to keep the people sheep-like and in line, plus a little extra as a bonus for not being complete screw-ups and causing a riot. Mainly, that's catering to their desires a little. 
Ruby gets makeup or a new dress. Jack gets pornography or steak. It's all about customer relations down here. But I'm dead, you said. How can I help with that? Well, you can't, obviously. But we do need help with keeping the shop running down here. We take care of the really sick and the infected down here. We bury the dead. We ration supplies. We even talk to folks on the outside from time to time. So yeah, you make a fine point about us being the Morlocks to their alloy. Yeah, got the reference. I went to college, too. What about Diana Rubel? Who? He delighted in the sight of my reddening cheeks. It hit him suddenly, and he tilted back in his chair, snapping his fingers. Right, the test subject with the baby. Sorry, I'm not on the medical staff. I don't know from names. What about her? Why do you keep them in there? For science, of course. Why else would I keep two highly contagious killing machines so close to my staff? I understand we're studying them in the increasingly futile attempt to find a cure. Or maybe some easier way to turn them off than cracking open their skulls. We're studying the rate of decomposition and decreasing viability. I understand your position being the idealistic young college student who thinks everyone can and should be saved. But when they arrived here, mommy and baby were already infected. You couldn't have done something more than watch them die? We did do more than watch them die. You had the reports with you and you took your time reading them. So you know all the tests we performed, all the samples we took. He waited for that to sink in and added, Yes, we've been watching you for a while, Jill. So you let them suffer? I pressed on. I'm not going to be pulled into a moral debate with you, Jill. I'm not the dean of liberal asshole university, and you are not in a position to push your first world butthurt agenda. He pulled a stack of brown folders out of the side drawer of his desk and tossed them over to my side. Here's some light reading for you. Every HG world built since 2005 has the same setup. They were designed to respond to a global catastrophic event. We didn't pick this particular crisis as the most likely, but here we are. In the event of a global pandemic, we were set up to research and continue trying to defeat the disease by any means necessary. If that means living human test subjects, then that's what we do. I have never infected a healthy subject, and I have always made sure that we remain, above all, human beings. If you disagree, call your congressman or try to organize a flash mob. But if you want to join us in the world that exists now and try to do something about it, I recommend looking into the work we've done. Those folders contain a half-dozen test cases we pulled from right outside the main doors of H.G. World. These are people who came to us in varying degrees of infection. We shared our research with the other sites and with the United Nations research team in Makwa, New York. If not for them, 
we would have no idea about the rate of infection if you could be a carrier. Little things that point us toward a new way to fight back. Good speech. You like that? I used variation on it for Krantz and Molly. Worked for them. How about you? So, all that research, what did their sacrifice tell you? Essentially, burn it with fire. There is no cure. It's not really a disease. It's more a parasite that's very intelligent. Over generations, it is trying to learn how to be like us, like some kind of body snatcher. Killing us is only necessary because it doesn't know how to overcome the human will. Some think that whatever gets into our head cannot conceive of our memories or sensations and has to shut it all off in order to focus on working our bodies correctly. A body snatcher. Like in the movies. Well, or like a voodoo zombie, but controlled from inside. We liked what we saw, realized that you could do some damage up there, and thought it best to bring you in to help us. That's why we sent Molly after you. Wait, you sent her after me? Look, it's not all cloak and dagger spooky-ass spy stuff, kid. We hang out, smoke weed, play Xbox. One of the guys brews his own beer. It's really not bad. So long as we can keep those idiots upstairs from turning the sheep into rams, we have a good time. Until we all starve or freeze or... Change is coming, my dear Miss Woodbine. Like I said, we talk to the outside world, and things aren't as bleak as you were led to believe. I've seen the outside, remember? It's a mob of eaters out into the valley. I've seen the outside, remember? It's a mob of eaters out into the valley. The valley isn't the world. The world really hasn't ended. It's just changed. A lot. You earned a place in the body that will reimagine the world. You know what? Look around. Have Molly show you the operation. If you don't like it or it's too much for your sensibilities, we'll figure something out. There are people on the outside. Two kids. Virgil, Hicks, and Ronnie something or other. They can take you out of here. There's this great quote by this 17th century Japanese guy called Bunan. I hope you take it to heart. Die while you're alive and be absolutely dead. Then do whatever you want. It's all good. Do you understand what I'm talking about, Jill Woodvine? Maybe I've had too much crypto Scooby-Doo shit to decode today, but no. Then go. Be with your red molly. Ponder why your old life is so important. Then consider the singular chance you have to die. And then, do whatever you want. Behind the patchwork surfer facade, I knew that was a lie. It was clear to me from his tone and his snidely whiplash narrative that if I didn't agree... I'd never see daylight again. This was my final test. <laughs>